Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. Glad we're together. Um, appreciate the first service for letting me rehearsing, rehearse to be prepared for you guys in the second service. Um, but it's all good. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are some amazing words. We could spend a whole lot of time just unpacking that truth. And since we have peace with God, as we talked about last week, we have nothing to prove. We've got nothing to lose, and we know that nothing, absolutely nothing at all, is wasted. From start to finish, our salvation is a miraculous work of God. In our passage this morning, Paul will dig even deeper into this truth, as if those truths aren't enough already. He will help us understand what I'm calling God's great reversal, which the Bible actually describes in a variety of ways. It says that he brings beauty from ashes. As we've learned earlier in Romans, it talks about how he creates something out of nothing and how he brings the dead to life. And I hope as we grow together in the knowledge of God's redemptive power that we find an increasing rest in the assurance of his sovereign control especially during seasons of life that we're all experiencing right now. We live in the kingdom of God's infinite grace. And let me remind you this morning, his kingdom is not in trouble, and neither are you. When God is our refuge, we have nothing, absolutely nothing, to fear. So I want you to listen closely as we unpack that truth of God's great reversal. I want you to pay attention to the description of God's limitless power and his infinite wisdom. And I want you to be reminded that those, that power, that wisdom is at work in you right now, where you are as a child of God. And so before we open up God's word together, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you, I pray, hungry um, with all that is happening in our world today. We need to be assured of your presence. We need to be reminded of your promise. And we need to rest in your sovereign control. So would you speak those truths to us this morning? Father, we do pray for those who aren't with us this morning, those who are recovering from illness or they're sick in this moment. We pray for their healing. We pray that without complication, they would be returned to full health very soon. But in those moments, both for us here and those who are watching online, we pray, Lord, that there is a deep sense of your presence, the empowering work of your spirit, alive and well with us right now. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, if you would, turn to Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12, and let's uh, pick up where we left off last. So if you want to read with me, beginning in verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned, for until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who is to come. 
But the free gift is not like the transgression. For if by the transgression of the one many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift of his grace and the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. Now, as we work through our passage this morning, I I want you to know it's easy to kind of get disoriented in Paul's circular argument. He's going to keep kind of going back and around and back and around, and the next thing you know, your head's kind of spinning a little bit. So I'm going to do the best I can to simplify this and to make it as clear as possible. And I think the best way to do that is just to state up front that the primary contrast here is between two people, uh, specifically the first person being Adam and the second person being Jesus. And what's important to know is that Paul is going to make the point that through these individual people, they make an impact on all of humanity. The first one is destructive. The second one is redemptive. That's the the big picture of what Paul wants us to understand this morning. Paul begins with Adam, the one through whom sin entered the world and death through sin. We need to understand that before Adam's willful disobedience, there was no sin in all of God's creation. And in the absence of sin, Adam and Eve lived in a peace-filled relationship with God. Scripture tells us that they walked with God in the garden in the cool of the evening. Is there any more peaceful description of life, walking with God in the garden In the cool of the evening, they exercise loving dominion over all of God's creation, and that's because all of God's creation was designed for them to flourish. And we know that they were a blessing to creation, and as a result, the creation was a blessing to them. But then came that awful day when deception entered into their story. Now, keep in mind, Adam and Eve lacked for nothing. Not a thing. But then Satan introduces this lie that perhaps there's something better. Which is crazy if you stop and think about it. You lack for nothing, but you long for something more. Hmm. I don't think it's just Adam and Eve. And here's the choice they have to make. Will they trust God? to faithfully provide just as he promised? Or will they believe that God is withholding something good from them and then therefore choose to go their own way? That's the decision that they have to make. And this is where Satan introduces his lie. He tells them that that forbidden fruit, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that God said, you can have everything that I've created, but not this because it will cause death. And they, Satan steps in and says, no, it won't cause death. Instead, it'll introduce you to something better. Something more than what you already possess. We know that because Genesis chapter 3, verse 4 says that the serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. There's the lie. For God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be Like God, there's the something better. Knowing good and evil. That was the temptation. And then came the decision. Adam and Eve willfully chose to forsake God's authority and go their own way. They stepped outside the boundary 
of his design, which is what sin is all about. Choosing to rule our own lives in rebellion against God. It's enmity. We talked about that last, last week. It's hostility with God and his rightful rule over his creation. This is the decision that introduced sin and death into the world in which we now live. We need to understand that this death is more than just physical death because that's quite obvious, right? Everyone dies. This death destroys a life-giving relationship with God. Because instead of walking with God in the cool of the garden, once sin was introduced into the story, Adam and Eve hid from God in the bushes. Instead of having peace with God and that life-giving relationship with Him, they were now covered with guilt and shame. Sin not only brought physical death, but it destroyed the life-giving relationship that they shared with God. It even destroyed their relationship with creation because now all of creation would work against them in many ways. It was subjected to futility because now sin has entered the world through Adam and death through sin. And like a disease, death has spread to all men because all have sinned. In a way, sin is the world's first pandemic. And it continues to this day. Now, that makes sense to us in our context, doesn't it? I mean, how many of you are tired of the coronavirus? It just wears us out. It's every day. We're looking at numbers. We're looking at cases. We have friends who've been infected. We've, had, we've lost people along the way. I mean, it's just an overwhelming presence. What if it never goes away? What if there is no vaccine? What if there is no cure? If we can get our heads around that because of the world in which we live today, then maybe we might understand more clearly the disease of sin. Because there is no vaccine. There is no cure. And in and of ourselves, we can't find a way for it to go away. Sin is what separates us from a life-giving relationship with God. But notice the clarification that Paul makes in verse 13. He says that sin was in the world before the law, but the law is what brought it into the light. Now, I want you to think about that in, in this way. Just imagine being in a dark room. It's pitch black. You can't see your hand in front of your face. And you're trying to make your way around all the obstacles in your path. And you're going to trip over the shoes that are on the floor. You're going to run into the corner of the table. You're going to face plan into the wall, right? It's just part of trying to find your way around in the dark. But then someone turns the light on. <laughs> and now you can see, which doesn't mean you're not going to trip over shoes anymore. <laughs> right? Or run into the corner of the table. It's just now you have no excuse. Well, that's the way the law works. It turns the light on to our sin. When Paul says that sin is not imputed when there was no law, he's saying that it wasn't taken into account. Like those objects in that dark room, sin has always been there. It's always been an obstacle in our path but it's just not clearly seen. We know that sin existed because death was reality 
Paul says all the way from Adam up to Moses when the law existed, everyone died, no exception. So sin clearly is at work. The law simply exposed sin as the cause of our death. It turned the light on. So that now, as Paul told us in Romans, we're without excuse. The truth is we were born with a sinful nature. We are incapable of choosing only good and avoiding all evil. Just like Adam, we are guilty of going our own way in rebellion against God. Everyone is sin, Paul says, and falls short of the glory of God. And for this reason, Paul says that Adam is a type of him who is to come. Now, he's obviously talking about Jesus, right? Remember, there's only two people he's drawing a contrast from, Adam and Jesus. So Adam is a type of he, Jesus, who is to come. And I want us to think about what he means by that. A type in this context is like a mold that creates something, okay? And if you think about a cup as an example, a cup has an empty cavity inside of it. That's what holds the water or the drink. Well, in order to create that cavity, you have to have a mold that fills that space. So in the sense, the mold is the opposite of the cavity. In the very same way, Adam is the opposite of Jesus. Listen how he goes on to explain that beginning in verse 15. He says, but the free gift is not like the transgression. For it is, for if by the transgression of the one, the many died, much more did the grace of God and the gift of his grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abound to many. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression, resulting in condemnation. But on the other hand, the free gift arose from many transgressions, resulting in justification. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Is your head spinning a little bit, right? It's his circular argument, but we're going to make this really simple. This is where Paul introduces the contrast or the opposite of Adam. Because where Adam brought the curse of sin, Paul says Jesus brought the gift of grace. This is God's great reversal. Because grace does the exact opposite of what we see with sin. See, sin, Paul says, brings condemnation. We stand guilty before a righteous God and individually accountable for our willful disobedience. If heaven requires perfect holiness, we don't get in. The barrier of sin prevents us from experiencing the life-giving relationship that we were ultimately created for. But Paul says, where sin brings condemnation, grace covers a multitude of sins. Where death rules over those who are guilty of sin, righteousness rules over those who are covered by grace. This is God's great reversal. Through one man, Adam, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all have sinned. 
This is an inescapable reality for all of humanity. We are by nature, Paul tells us, children of wrath. But through one man, Jesus, the curse was reversed by grace. Bringing reconciliation with God for those who believe, those who trust in him. We are justified. We are declared innocent by the redemption that is found in his blood through the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished upon us. Look at how he continues in verse 18. So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of the one, the many were made righteous. So first we see that God reversed the curse of sin with the gift of grace. And now Paul is going to tell us how God reversed the condemnation of sin through the justification of of the cross. Here Paul is transitioning from the specific people to their specific actions. And those actions affect all of humanity, remember. Because through one man, Adam, and the sin of his betrayal, sin spread to all men, therefore all are condemned. Now, some hear that and say, well, wait a second. That doesn't seem quite fair. You're trying to tell me that I'm guilty because of Adam's sin? Well, yes, but let me go even further and say, don't forget, we ratify Adam's original sin with plenty of sins of our own. We are just as guilty of rebelling against God as he was. Paul said earlier in Romans, we are without excuse. No one can claim to be innocent apart from Jesus Christ. But in the same way that Adam's rebellion leads to condemnation, the obedience of Jesus leads to justification. That act of righteousness that, that Paul is referring to here is the atonement, that price that he paid, the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross. That single act has the power to forgive all our sins. We are justified by faith as a gift of God's grace. The sacrifice of Jesus is sufficient to forgive all our sins. We know that's true because of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12. He tells us that having offered, there it is, one sacrifice for all time, Jesus sat down at the right hand of God. See, Jesus sat down because that one sacrifice has the power to forgive all sins for all time for all who believe. That one act of righteousness is a complete and final work of redemption. We can't add anything to it, and we can't take anything from it. The perfect sacrifice of Christ is the only solution for our sin. If you want to find a cure of the disease of sin in the life of humanity, the only solution is Jesus Christ. Paul presses that point when he says that through Adam's disobedience, we became sinners. 
But through the obedience of Jesus, we were made righteous. We became sinners, again, not only because of Adam's sin, but because of the sin that we have added to it over and over again. We followed his example of rebellion. Each of us personally accountable for our sinful choices. But we need to understand that God's law was, yes, written on tablets. We learn about that in the Old Testament. We know that it was written in this book. We can look it up and find it. But we also need to remember that it was written on our hearts, that it is a part of how he created us. And in more than one occasion, we have rejected his instruction and gone our own way. But that's not true for Jesus. He lived a life of perfect obedience. One of my favorite passages to see this being portrayed is in Philippians chapter 2. Listen as I begin reading in verse 5. Here Paul writes and says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in the appearances of man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That passage is telling us that Jesus set aside his divine rights to live in humble submission to the perfect plan of God and salvation for the world. Mark 10.45 tells us that Jesus did not come to be served, although he had every right to be served as the king of all creation. But instead he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In his humanity, he was tempted in every way as we are, every way Adam and Eve were, and yet without sin. In fact, if you go back and look at the temptation of Jesus in the desert and compare it to the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden, you'll find that the one mirrors the other. Because Satan knew the importance of the mission that Jesus was on. He was trying to convince Jesus to complete that mission without having gone to the cross. Just like we see with Adam and Eve, he's trying to tell him that there's a better way. Just like he told Adam and Eve. Just like he tells us. But unlike Adam and Eve and unlike us, Jesus knew that there was no better way than the perfect plan of God's perfect design. Unlike the disobedience of Adam and us, Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Through that one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. Look at how he continues in verse 20. It says, The law came in so that transgression would increase, but where, sinners, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God reversed the curse of sin with the gift of grace. He reversed the condemnation of sin with the work of the cross. And now we learn that he reversed eternal death by eternal life through the gift of righteousness. Paul begins this section in what kind of 
Seems like a strange way to start. He goes back to the law, those commandments given by God through Moses, and he says the law was given so that transgressions would increase. Now, if I'm writing, I'm thinking just the opposite, right? He gave us the law so that sins would decrease. God didn't want us to sin more, did he? He gave us the law in order to sin less, right? Well, that's not exactly the purpose of the law. I want you to listen to how Paul explains this in Romans chapter 7. We'll look at this very soon. But beginning in verse 7, he says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Well, may it never be. On the contrary, here it is, the light comes on. I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had said, you shall, had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is death. The law was not a list of rules to keep us from sinning. The law was given by God to reveal just how sinful we really are. But Paul says where sin increased, here's the good news, grace abounded all the more. The more we recognize our sin, the more we understand the gift of God's grace. David Crowder has that song that says that if grace were an ocean, then we're all sinking. And that's a true statement. Because here's the good news. There is no sin that pushes you beyond the boundary of God's infinite grace. Isn't that good news? We have no guilt in this life that sin, or no sin and guilt in this life that grace cannot cover. That's amazingly good news. It all comes down ultimately, now don't miss this, it all comes down ultimately to the very same decision that Adam and Eve had to make. We too have to decide whether we're going to trust God and that He is faithful to His promises or we will believe that God is withholding something good from us and we will choose to go our own way. The difference in that decision, don't miss this, it's important. The difference in that decision is literally life and death. Because where sin reigns, death rules. Apart from Christ, we are a slave to sin and powerless to break free. But where grace reigns, Paul says, righteousness rules. And as we've talked about, this is not a righteousness of our own. None of us can sit here and say, yeah, I've done pretty good, haven't I? No, this is not your righteousness. We know that because of 2 Corinthians 5.21 that says, He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, so that we might become the, here it is, righteousness of God in Him. When we are ruled by the righteousness of God, we are no longer ruled by the power of sin. We are empowered by the work of His Spirit. We are protected by His promise. Our inheritance is guaranteed through the finished work of the cross. So with that being said, I want to ask you a question in light of our passage this morning that I want you to consider very seriously. I want you to ask yourself to honestly answer this question. Am I ruled by guilt or by grace? Am I ruled by guilt 
or am I ruled by grace? And when I talk about guilt in this context, I'm talking about shame, that nagging sense that I don't measure up, that I don't have what it takes, that I'll never be enough. Because I believe this is a difficult issue, a very common issue in the life of many believers today, one in which I've even struggled with in my own life as well. But the only reason that we would believe this to be true is if we've listened to the enemy's lie. You see, before you came to Christ, Satan wanted to convince you that there was something better, something better outside the boundaries of God's design. That's a lie. Now that you've come to Christ, he wants to convince you that you'll never be enough, that somehow you're always trying to work to be in good standing. That also is a lie. But the reason that Satan wants you to focus on all your inadequacies is because he wants you to lose sight of all God's sufficiency. Our true identity is found in what Christ has done, not in what we accomplish. You have been rescued from the domain of darkness. You've been transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son, a kingdom of infinite grace, a kingdom in which you have infinite worth. So ask yourself, am I being ruled by guilt or am I being ruled by grace? And it all comes down to who you've placed your trust in. And the truth of Scripture says that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. It says, in Romans chapter 8, verse 37, that you are more than conquerors through him who loves you. Peter reminds us that we have been granted the same power that raised Jesus from the dead so that you have everything you need for life and godliness. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 says that you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. Not some, not a few, not if you're good, but every spiritual blessing has been lavished upon you as a child of God. We just have to learn to believe that what he says is true. And then we have to learn to apply those truths to our life. So let me give you an exercise that I learned recently from Chip Ingram that I found great value in my own life. As I've shared with you in recent months, I have had a difficult year struggling with anxiety had a number of panic attacks that, in the moment, try to convince me that this is it, this is the end, I'm going to die, that I won't live through this. And it's a terrifying experience. And I know that others have had those same struggles, and one of the things that I've had to do is try to confront the reality that those struggles exist. Because as a pastor, sometimes I try to convince myself that I'm not supposed to have struggles like that. And so I've found great value in being able to name the sin, to look at my life and say, that's anxiety. That's not from God. I know what you look like. I know what you do. Because here's the other thing. Many times when we go through those struggles and those difficulties and we have these issues of sin in our life, we want to ignore them. We want to pretend that they're not there. And that could be the worst possible thing that we do. We need to name them. We need to recognize them as a misbelief, something that is not true. And then we need to counter them with a truth of God that is true. And then we need to cling to that truth of God. So here's what I want you to do. You can take a three-by-five note card, 
And on that note card, I want you to write your misbelief. And I'm going to give you an example of what one of my note cards looks like. It says this. Here's the misbelief. My identity and worth is found in the opinion of other people and my ability to meet their expectations. Anybody else have that misbelief? It's a common struggle, right? But here's the truth. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. God said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Now, I want to pause there because... When I was working through this in my own life, that second verse was the first thought that came to my mind. But I rationalized it and thought, but that's not for me. Because that verse reflects the encounter that Jesus had whenever he was being baptized. And you remember the dove descended and then you heard the voice from heaven and you heard God say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And I thought, he said that to Jesus. He didn't say that to me. But then as I spent time with the Lord, he reminded me, if you're in Christ, what is true for him is true for you. Todd, you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That is the truth. Another example of a card that I have says, God has abandoned me and left me to myself to struggle with fear and anxiety. Not too long ago, I spent six hours in solitude and science, in silence just kind of wrestling with this. This is how I began my time. And I just had to say it out loud. I had to name it because that's what it felt like. And in my heart of hearts, I knew it was not true, but I had to speak it out loud. And I had to be honest before God. Lord, it feels like you've abandoned me. And then he reminded me, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. He reminded me that I have not given you the spirit of fear, but of love and of power and of a sound mind. So what I encourage you to do is make your own cards. I put them in my bathroom against my mirror, and I look at them regularly so that I am confronting the misbeliefs and I'm being reminded of the eternal truths. We have to decide. Are we going to be ruled by guilt or by grace? Are we going to hide from God or are we going to draw near to God? Are we going to listen to lies or are we going to cling to the truth? So let me remind you of that truth again. You live in the unshakable kingdom of God's infinite grace. And that kingdom is not in trouble. And neither are you. And when God is your refuge, you have nothing to fear. Amen? Let me pray for us, and then we'll close in song. Lord, thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, this world is filled with lies. We are confronted with them every single day. And sometimes, even we can be our own worst enemy. So, Lord, bring us back to what is true, what is right, what is good. Help us to see that we flourish inside the boundaries of your design. And no, it's not true. There's not something better outside of that boundary. That that boundary is there in order for us to be everything that you've created us to be. And we lack for nothing when we put our trust in you. So Lord, give us that confidence as we rest in you as our refuge. You are our stronghold. And in you, we will not be greatly shaken. Amen. If you would, stand and let's sing together. It's good news, isn't it?
God's great reversal. I just want you to know as we close this morning that that's not just some Bible story. That's your story. If you're in Christ, that's your story. Through one man, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. But God, because of his great mercy and the love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our sin, made us alive together with Christ. For by grace, you have been saved. That's your story. So I want you to go in peace, and I want you to live in the assurance of God's sovereign control. Let's focus less on what's happening around us or even what's happening within us and focus more on who he is and what he's promised and see if that doesn't settle our soul. Amen? Have a great day.